Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you here, especially knowing that a lot of families are down with Omicron and all that stuff going on, but you guys are all symptom-free, right? I'm just checking. Symptom-free, right? This is your COVID check. If you have symptoms, get out. Um, We're continuing in Jonah, and I'm going to try and give them some time to see whether they can get that signal up. It's working. Good. They got it. They're all excited. Um, And I'm getting used to this new technology here, so I'm going to try and do better this week than I did last week in terms of how I respond to this. Um, We chose Jonah because we finished a series prior to Christmas on imperfect discipleship. And I went through the Bible and I was thinking, what do I do after imperfect discipleship? And thought, well, who's the most imperfect disciple we can find in the Bible? And Jonah came to mind. And so we've been looking at Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, just how far Jonah had declined in his spiritual life. Even though he had enjoyed close fellowship with God, he was a prophet. God spoke to him through the Spirit and he spoke the words of God to the people. He was in the schools of the prophet with Elijah and Elisha and dozens, hundreds even, of other prophets and disciples. He enjoyed a spiritual fellowship that was almost kind of New Covenant church-like, even in the Old Covenant. But still Jonah fell into prideful stubbornness and disobedience. And what we learn from that is that the walk of a disciple is always day by day. It's always today and the next day. Past victories and past grace and past mercy make wonderful trophies, and trophies of past grace are fantastic. There's nothing wrong with that. But as disciples, our relationship with God is ongoing, and God calls us in our life to follow him fresh every day with new mercies and new grace. Not just to rest in the past. Our hope is in future grace. And then in chapter 2, we see that God's at work in Jonah, that he pursues Jonah. Even as Jonah runs, God pursues him with a storm. And he preserves Jonah in the fish. He extends mercy to Jonah despite his imperfect prayer and his faltering, flickering faith. God gets Jonah turned back around, and he gets Jonah back on a path of spiritual revival and spiritual renewal. It's not perfect yet, but Jonah is at least going the right direction now. Lots of lessons in Jonah 1 and 2. But now in Jonah chapter 3, it's interesting. The scene and the emphasis moves away from Jonah, per se. And in some ways, Jonah chapter 3 and 4, it's almost a different story. And we sense that inherently as we read it. If you ask people that you know, maybe not as closely churched as you, about the book of Jonah, they will tell you quickly about Jonah running away from God, the storm, the big fish, getting spit up on the, on the sand. And that seems like a satisfactory conclusion. The story's over. Jo- Jonah was disobedient. God pursued him. Jonah repented. He spit up on the beach. Yay, curtain closes. But it doesn't end there. The the book of Jonah isn't done at the end of chapter 2. Because the story's not really all about Jonah. God still has more to teach Jonah, and through Jonah, teach us. And perhaps that's the first lesson. It's not all about you. And when I say it, I mean life, the kingdom, God's mission, salvation, redemption, mercy, regeneration, trials and circumstances, your marriage, your work, your kids, your stuff. It actually isn't only about you. You're important. 
You're just not alone in your life story. And Jonah isn't all about Jonah. And so if Jonah is broken into two stories with two broad lessons, we might break them down this way or describe Jonah this way. Jonah chapters 1 and 2 is what Jonah teaches us about the mission and work of God in us. We saw God at work in Jonah. Grace, regeneration, renewal. Jonah chapters 3 and 4 is what Jonah teaches us about the mission and work of God in the world. Mercy, evangelism, salvation. And notice that the common element between both stories is what we learn about God. God is in our story of personal renewal, and God is in the story of the world and his plan for the world. And so Jonah, like all scriptures, is mainly teaching us about God, where and how God works in all things. And so we've looked at how God works in us and in our spiritual renewal and our spiritual revival. Chapters 2 and 3, we're going to look at how God is at work in mission in the world. And so what are we meant to learn about the mission and work of God in the world from Jonah part 2? It's a weird story. You have this grumpy, sulky, angry prophet going to a place he doesn't want to go, preaching a really poor sermon, and then being angry about it afterwards. There's a plant and some shade and a worm, and then it ends really unsatisfactorily at the end. And that's why most people don't even remember Jonah 3 and 4 exist. They think it's all over with him getting spit up on the beach. I mean, that's where Sunday school ended, right? But we're going to go on in Jonah and see what it has to teach us. And so let's just read the whole chapter once again, like Jonah as a book and Jonah as chapters. It's pretty short. And we will see from the text where these lessons come from about God and the world. And as I read chapter 3, it may be helpful if you're considering three key things as I read, because I want you to see them in the text so that you know I'm not just making this stuff up. The three things you're looking for are the challenge posed by Nineveh, the imperfect performance of Jonah, and the result of God's work. So let me just pray before we open God's word and learn from his Holy Spirit. Father God, thank you again for your blessing of a church, of a body of believers that come and sit under your word and learn from your Holy Spirit that you've not left us as orphans, but you've given us a family that we can encourage one another, and you, by your Holy Spirit, can teach us in ways that we could never learn on our own. So, Father, we thank you for your word, which we're about to read. We thank you for your spirit, and, of course, we thank you for your son. And so, Father, just open our hearts, open our minds to what you teach us today. In Christ's name, amen. So, read along with me. Open your Bibles, look on your phone, look at the screen, whatever. Jonah 3, 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Remember how I said it like the story starts over again? (laughs) God's like, okay, let's start this all over again. Word of the Lord came to Jonah the first time, didn't work. Word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, and Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And there we have the third chapter of Jonah. So, the first thing Jonah has to start off facing is the challenge of Nineveh. What do we do with the challenge of Nineveh? It says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. So as, as Jonah finally gets back on mission with God, he, he finally comes face to face with this calling that God has put on his life that he ran away from, not because he was afraid of the calling or the challenge, but as we'll see at the end, he was afraid that God was going to be merciful and actually relent, and he didn't want that. But he has to face this challenge. And instead of telling us all about Jonah like chapters 1 and 2 did, the account now shifts to tell us all about Nineveh. Nineveh is the object of attention. Nineveh is where God is going to work and do some revival. So what is it about Nineveh? Well, the first thing we see is that Nineveh is big. It's a city of three days' journey in size, and scholars have debated what exactly that's supposed to mean. Is it three days to walk across it? That would be huge. Um, Is it three days to walk around the circumference of it? That still seems too big for a Middle Eastern city of the time. Most likely it means something like it takes three days to really visit Nineveh. I mean, that's the way we talk about cities, right? You're going to New York, you better set aside like a week if you're going to see New York, right? If you're going to Toronto, you know, it takes some time to see it. That's how we talk about it. So it probably means Nineveh was kind of a three-day tour kind of city. But whatever it is, what it's communicating is it's a big city. It's not the capital of Assyria, But it's a royal city. It has a palace. It has nobles. It has governors. It's a seat of government. It's metropolitan. And at this time, roughly 750 BC, it was bragged about Nineveh that anything in the world could be found in the shops of Nineveh. It's like Toronto or Hong Kong or New York. It's a big metropolitan city. So Nineveh's big. It's also wicked. Chapter 1, verse 2 starts off with God's attention to Nineveh by saying, their evil has come up before me, or their wickedness has risen to me. And so the culture of Nineveh, you have to understand, was so immoral that their behavior was rising up to God like a stench in his nostrils. And he's like, what is this evil thing that I smell in heaven, and it's like smoke or pollution of evil rising up. Nineveh was sin city. The king admits as much in this chapter in verse 8, which we'll get to shortly. He tells the whole city, stop being so evil and stop all your violence. I mean, they know that they're wicked and violent people. So it's big and it's wicked. We also know that Nineveh is foreign and hostile. Jonah is not in Israel anymore. Um, 
He's not home with his people. These Assyrians don't honor God. They don't honor his values or his morals. Even in the most nominal cultural sense, let alone faithfully, they practice immorality and pagan worship and wickedness very normally and acceptably, just as a matter of day-to-day life. It's just how they get along. They do things Israel would never do, Jonah would never do. Their sacrifices, their sex lives, their treatment of others, the priority of power, the way they spend their wealth, everything in their culture is just different. It's foreign, and it's hostile. They're literally hostile towards the nation of Israel. They're hostile to Jonah as an Israelite, hostile to his faith. But there's another thing we can note here at the end here is that it's also a city and a culture that's becoming a little bit aware of its fragility and how it isn't really as successful and as smart and as culturally with it as they think they are. They recognize their wickedness. They recognize that their culture is becoming violent, that it's starting to crack at the seams. You can look at what the king says in verse 3-8, as I just touched on, or we can look at history. When faced with the word of God, the king recognizes the evil and violence of his people for what they are. And historically, if we consider Nineveh at this time period, we can learn that although it is a great city in a powerful nation, it's actually a city that's starting to fall apart at the seams. Jonah is coming to Nineveh, and I think this is part of God's plan because this is what he does in our life, and this is what he does in the life of nations. Jonah is coming to Nineveh at a time when it has very little influence over the world around it. Assyria is in a decades-long period of decline here in the middle of the 8th century BC. There's a famine in 763 and then another famine in 759, and there have been political protests and rebellions taking place in the capital cities, and provinces have become almost independent, making their own laws and rebelling against the central authority. People are protesting in the streets. There's definitely a cultural feeling at this particular time that the economy is insecure, the unity of the government is in question, the people are restless, they feel insecure, and maybe, just maybe, they are not as smart as they thought they all were. It's a city and a culture with the ground shifting under its feet. And so Jonah is given what seems to be an impossible task. And when we think of our evangelistic calling to the world that God has us on mission on, we face what we feel is almost an impossible task. Nineveh, the world out there, is just too big, too different, too evil, too hostile towards us to imagine that we will ever make a dent in it. It's just an overwhelming thought that little old lakeside is going to shift the culture of Canada. (laughs) Or even just shift the culture of Halliburton, let alone Ontario or the nation. It's big, wicked, foreign, and hostile. It's overwhelming. We see the impact of moral decay. We see the violence and the anger and the hostility that is taking place day after day in the political systems and the social systems. We see that this is a culture around us that is in desperate need of humility and repentance and salvation, but is going exactly the other direction towards arrogance and anger and violence. And we wonder if it's possible. It's just so big and angry and evil. That is the challenge of Nineveh. 
And it's our challenge, as God calls us out, to share his word to people who are large, hostile, and very foreign to us as citizens of heaven. But if we look at the contrast of Nineveh to Jonah, the story gets worse, it seems, not better. First thing we see is that Jonah is very unsophisticated. He's a hick. He's a backwater prophet from the sticks of Israel. And uh, 2 Kings 14.25, which talks about Jonah, says that he's from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer. Which, if you can imagine the nation of Israel, so Israel's kind of this long, thin nation. Jerusalem's at the bottom kind of here. And it's kind of about 80 or 90 kilometers inland. And it's a metropolis. Jerusalem is fantastic. It's comparable to Nineveh, even. And then over on the coast, you got the Mediterranean coast, which is like where all the economy is. Think like California. This is where all the ships come in and the goods flow through. It's cosmopolitan and there's money and economy. So you got Jerusalem and you got the coast. Gath Heifer is right in the middle. It's in basically the agricultural rural hinterland of Israel. It's the backwater. It's the sticks. And that's where Jonah's from. Jonah is this kind of redneck backwater guy who lives on a farm somewhere in the middle of nowhere. He's not in the metropolis. Yeah, he lives in Halliburton. Exactly. Let's be honest. (laughs) Jonah lives in Halliburton, right? And this is where Jonah is from. So in contrast to the city that he's going to reach, Jonah is like this country bumpkin who comes to the city. I mean, he's from Gath Heifer. Even the name sounds stupid. And that's where Jonah is from. But not only is he from this sort of unsophisticated backwater, he's also, we know from the first two chapters, at a spiritual low point. Um, he's, faith is a bruised reed. It's a flickering wick. Yes, he is obeying God, finally, but he doesn't want to obey God, really. He has weak faith, and he has a bad attitude. And in chapter 4 especially, we'll see just how little he cares about his audience. He has no compassion for Nineveh at all. He doesn't like them. He doesn't want them to be saved. He's quite angry that God will probably save them. And all of that makes Jonah a pretty poor evangelist. Nineveh is a city of three days' journey, we're told, and yet verse 4 says Jonah went into the city a day's journey. He didn't even go all the way in. He didn't spend very long there, we know, because the king himself didn't even hear the message from Jonah himself. It says the king heard a sermon summary secondhand. Verse 6 says the word reached the king. So as an evangelistic strategy, Jonah basically walks into the city, starts talking on the street to whoever happens to be there, and like, maybe somebody important will hear this, I'm done, and he goes and sits outside the city for 40 days waiting for disaster to strike. He's just not a good evangelist at all. And he preaches a pretty imperfect sermon. It's pretty weak on the surface of it. His sermon is summed up this way, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. It's five words in Hebrew. (laughs) That's his sermon. I'm sure that's a summary of it. But if what people took away from his sermon was, we're going to be destroyed in five days, you can imagine what a gripping, hope-filled, encouraging sermon it was. I mean, that's the summary. If it was today, we would be critiquing it. Where's the grace? Where's the mercy? Where is the hope? Where's the salvation at the end? He just says, you have 40 days, and then God's going to destroy you. Maybe he's got Johnny Cash's God's going to cut you down playing in the background. 
as a closing song. We'll just wrap this up. But let's be honest here. You put Nineveh together with Jonah, and too often you have us, don't you? We look at ourselves and we think we are unsophisticated, we are untalented, we are not social movers and shakers. There is so much about our culture that actually we really don't like at all. And it's so massive and overwhelming. My evangelistic efforts are nothing but a drop in the bucket in a sea of evil. And honestly, I'm not really all that keen on attempting any of those efforts, just like Jonah. But God says do it, so I will make a half-hearted effort at it. And I probably will not do it in the kindest or most thoughtful way, and then I will skulk off, as Jonah did. We all are, if we are honest, even though not right outright disobedient, which we really are, we are at least lackluster evangelists who inwardly harbor hurt and animosity and grudges against the very people we're supposed to be reaching with mercy and grace and love. And as a church on a whole, you know what that results in? That results on the people of Nineveh out there who look at the church and say, all you can speak to us is condemnation and judgment, just like Jonah did. (laughs) Jonah walked into Nineveh and said, God's going to judge and destroy you all. And you know what? The evangelistic efforts of the church quite often come across to the world that way. Do you actually care about us? Because all I hear the church doing is telling us what terrible people we are and judging us. And so when we look at the lessons here of Jonah, it's like this is talking too much about us. But as we stated at the outset, the lesson of chapter 3 and 4 is about God's mission and work in the world. And so what does the challenge of Nineveh and the contrast of Jonah teach us about God? And to understand that, we have to briefly consider Nineveh's response to Jonah's imperfect evangelism. How did the overwhelmingly large, hostile, wicked city respond to this unsophisticated, condemning, miserable evangelist? Well, we get Nineveh's responses in version, in verses 6 to 9. The word of the read, word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne. He removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God, and let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. And who knows, God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So despite the clearly insurmountable odds and challenges of Nineveh, and despite the very well-detailed and evident weakness of Jonah, the city of Nineveh repents. And verse 8 summarizes the three key elements of their response, the first one being humility. Nineveh is humbled, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Just as Jonah was humbled under the hand of God in chapter 2 in the fish, Nineveh realizes they must humble themselves, signified by the wearing of sackcloth and sitting or covering themselves in ashes. God has humbled them already through the famine, through political unrest, through military failure against other nations. This is a city that was ready to be humbled. They were not as smart as they thought they were. Their systems were coming apart at the seams. And through Jonah, this judgment comes. And they realize that they need to humble themselves. 
the abandonment of their basic moral values, the evil and the wickedness and the violence that they were doing was not working. And so they humbled themselves when God's word came to them. The second thing we see in verse 8 is that they repented. It says, let them call out mightily to God. So these humbled people repent. The people call out to God for safety, for rescue. And the word God here is interesting. It's not Yahweh, it's Elohim. It's the more primitive, it's the early pre-covenant name of God. It seems like Jonah did not actually even tell these people about Yahweh. He he didn't tell them about the covenant-keeping God of Israel. He just said, God, this cosmic God who is righteous and can destroy you for your wickedness. These people in Nineveh don't even know Yahweh. They just acknowledge that God is God and they are not God. He is the perfect counsel of heaven and they have disobeyed what they know to be his laws. And they are evil and they pursue wickedness and they repent to that God. And Jonah's sermon of judgment is neither inaccurate nor ineffective. I mean, I kind of poked fun at it because it's not the kind of sermon that you hear today, but maybe we need some more of these sermons. Because, yes, God is gracious, and yes, God is merciful, but make no mistake, if there is going to be true repentance, there needs to be a recognition of the seriousness of our sin and the danger of God. If our sin is not serious and God is not dangerous in his righteousness and his justice, then there is no need for mercy. There is no need for grace. There is no need for forgiveness. Who needs mercy if you're not in danger? Who needs rescuing if there is no threat? And so these people at Nineveh understood the seriousness of their sin and the danger of God. The danger for sinners is the presence of a just and righteous God who cannot tolerate sin. Yes, mercy. Yes, grace. Yes, forgiveness. Yes, love. But all of them are only present or possible if we acknowledge that God by his nature is deadly towards sin. Sin comes into the presence of God. It's destroyed. If we come into the presence of God with sin, we are destroyed. It can't coexist. And so God has made a way by his grace, by his mercy, by his love, by his forgiveness to cover us with a righteousness that is not our own. And so the people of Nineveh repent knowing the seriousness of their sin and the danger of God. And that God's righteousness is deadly to them. They cannot coexist with him if they continue in their unrighteousness. And their repentance... Results in obedience. It says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The people of Nineveh actually stop disobeying God and they start obeying. They turn. They put away the old and they start walking in the new. So God humbles Nineveh just as he humbled Jonah. God humbled Jonah. Jonah repented and Jonah started walking in new obedience. Now, in part two of the story, God humbles Nineveh, Nineveh repents, and Nineveh starts walking in new obedience. Part one and two are about Jonah and about us personally. Chapter three and four is about the world and God at the same work, the same mission in the world that he is at in our life. So what do we learn from that response then and that parallel 
of God's mission and work in us and God's mission of work in the world. Well, the first thing that we can learn from this is that God uses his people for his purposes. Sure, Jonah is not the strongest prophet. He is at a spiritual low point. He is not eloquent. He doesn't even like his audience. In fact, he hates the people he's preaching to. I love you guys. I've got at least that edge on Jonah. He literally hates his audience. Pretty much all that he has to offer them is judgment and condemnation and rebuke. But God's word comes to the world through his people. God has chosen by some mystery to accomplish his grace and his mercy through the servants that he has called out in this world, imperfect though they are. God's word comes to the world through his people and revival starts in his own house and then revival and salvation flows out from the household of God. Revival had to start with Jonah. Jonah had to get his spiritual life turned around and then once Jonah got his spiritual life turned around, not perfect, but turned around, then salvation flowed out from Jonah. And that's the way it works here too. Revival and spiritual renewal. We look around at the culture and we say there needs to be revival and spiritual renewal. You know where that starts? Here. Spiritual renewal starts in God's people and salvation flows out to the culture from here. Sorry. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Romans, in chapter 10, he says... How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In other words, when Jesus said, go and make disciples, he meant it. You know, you backwater fishermen from Galilee, you despised tax collectors, you sinner disciples of mine, go and preach the word. You are the means by which salvation is going to come to the world. You 12 are going to change the globe. Seems insurmountable. But God does it through his people. For some strange reason, God uses people like Jonah, like Moses, like Peter, like Paul, like me, like you, and he accomplishes salvation. God does it. The Apostle Paul says of his own testimony in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Even in a world that hates you, even in a world, to be honest, that you're not all that fond of either, you are to share the gospel, flawed you, Weak you, bruised you, flickering, wick you. Speak the word of God and let the word of God work. That's the second lesson, is that only God's miraculous power brings revival. 1 Corinthians 2 that I just read is pretty clear. It isn't Paul's great arguments. It isn't Paul's powerful preaching. And we could look at Moses and Abraham and Peter and all of those that I mentioned. Salvation flows outward from God's people, just like Jonah, but it is God what accomplishes what is impossible. The challenge of Nineveh, this tremendous city, and one backwater little prophet walking into it one day, preaching one day on the streets, changed the city of New York in context. Changed the city of Toronto, changed Hong Kong, changed Chicago. Changed Paris, changed London, one backwater prophet. Was it Jonah? Everything in Jonah tells us it wasn't Jonah. He was disobedient at a spiritual low point, 
ineloquent, judgmental, hated his audience. How did it happen? Revival happens in the world only by God's miraculous power. It's God who brings revival. Even the pagan king understands that their salvation depends on the movement of God. He says in verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Even this pagan king understands it's God's power towards us that's going to make the difference. In human terms, who does know? The king knows it's not up to him or his city if they're saved. It's up to God. All he knows is that they need to acknowledge that God and acknowledge his sovereignty. Recognize that they have no power to save themselves. That they are a bankrupt people, culturally bankrupt, morally bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt, utterly powerless. They, pagan Assyrians though they are, can only hope in God. God's mission and work in the world is through his own people, weak as we are, but it is by his miraculous power, not our ability, certainly not our righteousness. But we also see in Jonah chapter 3 that God's mission and work in the world is for all people. These are Assyrians. God is not a tribal God. We usually think of the Old Testament as being about God's special attention on Israel. They have the law, and God chose them and brought them out of the world as a people, and they have all the blessings, and they do the sacrifices, and salvation is for them, and they inherit the promised land. And we usually think it isn't until Jesus comes along in the New Testament that we really start to think of God as being accessible to everybody, that Jesus finally brings the good news that was to Israel out to the world. But if you think that that's the way it's worked, you have to overlook a lot of the Old Testament in order to miss the fact that God has always been for all people. And the book of Jonah is a double underlined, bold type exclamation of the fact that God does not change. He has always been the God of salvation for all people who would come to him. Jonah is sent to the Assyrians, to Nineveh, to the enemy of God's people who were so evil that the stench of their evil was in God's nostrils. And God's response to these evil, foreign people who are so wicked, I'm going to save them. I'm going to send this weak prophet to share the good news that I am righteous, but I'm also merciful. And I will send Jonah to get a revival going amongst these wicked foreigners. It's grace shown to his enemies, and at the same time, it's a rebuke of all his supposed children. In Matthew 12, we get an interesting reference from Jesus to Jonah. The Pharisees are asking Jesus for a sign, and he says, the only sign you're going to get from me is the sign of Jonah. He was in the belly of a fish for three days, and then he emerged and he preached salvation. The men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn you hypocrites, Jesus says here. He says, you Pharisees, you know what's going to happen? Yeah, in the time to come, in the judgment to come, you know who's going to condemn you? The the people of Nineveh are going to rise up and condemn you because they believe Jonah, and you've got Jesus, and you don't believe. That's the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is that Jesus has preached the gospel to all the nations, and his own people are not listening to him. We associate Jesus with the proclamation of the gospel to the whole world because that's what Jesus says about himself. He says, I'm just like Jonah. I'm proclaiming the news of God to people outside of Israel. 
Something better than Jonah is here, and I am preaching a better word to a wider world, and there is a power of salvation for the world that you will all miss out on if you don't understand what I'm about. If you don't realize that the gospel is for all people, all tribes, all nations, all enemies, all rebels, all political parties, all ideologies, no matter what they've done, no matter what their history is, God is the God offering salvation to all people. And I'm merciful to all people, even Assyrians, which is our last lesson for today about God and his mission and work in the world. He uses his people. It's by his power. He's for all people, but he is full of mercy to the humble. Verse 10, chapter 3, ends this way. When God saw what they did, sorry, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Basically, when God saw that they were sincere, when God saw that Nineveh wasn't just pretending to do good, when they weren't just trying to act like they were good people, when God saw that they were sincere in their repentance and that they had a real heart change, his mercy reigned and they were saved. If we look back at Romans 10 again, where Paul is talking about our missionary work to the world, He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, he won't let you down. He won't pull the rug out from underneath you. If you believe in him, God will save you, absolutely guaranteed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. God is faithful to show mercy to all who call on him. And this is what Jonah is really about. Not just chapter 3, but all of Jonah, all of Scripture, the whole Bible is resounding to the same gospel message over and over and over again. God will come to the wicked. He will come to all people, and it doesn't matter who you are. Believe on him, and you will be saved, because he is a merciful God. That's Jonah. Can I not get an amen for that? (laughs) That's Jonah. God is faithful to show mercy on all who call on him. If someone does not receive mercy from God, it's because they have refused to call. They've made that decision. I want to do it my way. I don't want to trust in God. I don't want to call on him. Because if they call on him, they will be saved. They receive his mercy. That is the message of Jonah. That is the message of all of Scripture. And so chapter 3 teaches us that this is not really a story of Jonah's failure, but of God's favor on mankind. Jonah is not a story about Jonah's message, but of God's mercy. Favor and mercy that is available to everyone. It doesn't matter. You may think, My wickedness has gone up before God like a stench in heaven. There is no way that the things that I've done can ever be forgiven. You may have done terrible things, but I can almost guarantee you didn't do what the Assyrians did. 
I mean, I won't get into it all for the sake of time. The Assyrians were an evil people. I mean, human sacrifice, when they captured people, they put fish hooks through their lips and their nose and led them on chains with fish hooks through their face. That's the Assyrian people. That's who God is forgiving. And you think, that's not fair, that's not just, those people deserve to be punished. Yes, they do deserve to be punished. You know what the mercy of God is? It's not getting what we deserve, it's getting grace and forgiveness. We all deserve to be punished. We all have done wickedness. But God says, I'm not going to give you what's fair. I'm going to give you mercy instead. You're going to get treated unfairly. You know who I'm going to treat unfairly? My son. My son who did nothing ever to displease me. My son who was perfect. My son who was me, who is God. Who counted equality with God, not a thing to be grasped but humbled himself to the point of a cross. Jesus said, nobody's forcing me to do this. I lay down my life willingly, and I will take it up again. And that's what he did. He laid down his life willingly for the Assyrians. He laid down his life willingly for the most wicked. He laid down his life willingly for you if you believe in him. If you trust in him, he will forgive you. His mercy is the power. It's miraculous power. It doesn't matter how good I preach. I'm not a good preacher. It doesn't matter how eloquent I am. It doesn't matter how flashy our PowerPoints are. It doesn't matter how great our worship is. It's not by our power that people are saved. It's by the miraculous power of God to save people. And you think it's impossible. It is impossible. But God's already done it. It's finished. It's done historically. And you say, it's impossible for me. I'm Jonah. I'm weak. I can't do it. I can't go evangelize this world. They hate me. Don't you see the people? Don't you see them online and they're mocking of Christians? They hate my values. They hate my faith. They hate me. And I don't really like them. Do you see what they do? Yeah, it is impossible. But you know what? It's not your evangelistic power that saves people. It's God's miraculous power that saves people. The message of Jonah is that We are called. God works through his people to reach the lost. The message of Jonah is that it's by his miraculous mercy that all are saved. Father God, I just pray here at the end here. I just pray. We get this message. We're all Jonas. We're all smoldering wicks. We're all bruised reeds. We're all afraid of the world out there at some level because it is big and scary and wicked and hostile and foreign. We're citizens of heaven. We're not citizens of this world anymore. We're foreigners here. And we appear backwards and stupid most of the time to the world. But that's a world out there. If we just step back and look at Nineveh, it is fracturing. It is falling apart. It is going through famine after famine. The wisdom of the world is not working. The political structures and powers are cracking at the foundations. And Father, what you've shown us is that you use those circumstances to humble them at times. Sometimes it's one by one. Well, it's always one by one. You send a poor, faltering little prophet along, and we speak a word, and somebody says, I need that. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm wicked. I know I've failed. I know my life is a bad a mess as our country is a mess, as the world is a mess. It's all a mess. But you're telling me that there's a God who's shown mercy, 
who has joy in store for me, who can rescue me, who has sent his son to die for me, to take the punishment that I can never pay, that is good news. I'll take it. Father, help us to be bold with that word. And Father, help us as much as possible to not be like Jonah. Let's not hate the world. Yeah, it can become an us versus them thing really easily. Father, let's throw all the us versus them stuff out. I've seen too many people leave the church over politics. I want to see more people leave politics for the church. Make that true of us at Lakeside. Amen.